Well, it's so good to see you guys. Um, always, <clears throat> always uh, enjoy breaks, but I miss you guys. I miss being with you. Um, if, if you're new to Wednesday Night Community, uh, this is a time when weekly we gather together and we look at Scripture. We, we study Scripture. Oftentimes it's, it's a bit of a deep dive. We're looking at Scripture in its original context. We want to become better readers, more informed readers of the Bible because we want to know our God better. And so that's, that's what we do each week. If you're a parent and you dropped your kids off at TSM, um, Pastor J. Matt, every week he creates what's called car questions. And they're on the back of their kind of behind the sound booth. You can snap a picture of it. You can pick one of these up. Um, ever as a parent have those conversations in the car with your kids where it's just, it lasts about two words. You know, it's like, how was, how was you know, church tonight? Like, how was school today? Fine, right? And it's just in you're kind of like, well, he's, he's, he's put some questions down that really kind of pull out. Like, so like when you talk about this, like what did you think about that? So just kind of a little bit better way to engage with your kids. So I encourage you to grab one of those. And uh, if, you, if you didn't get a bulletin, maybe go pick one up. We're going to be using the content in here quite a bit tonight. Um, there's a number of things on the inside that would, that'll be really, really helpful for what we're going to walk through. But on the back of your bulletin, just want to make you aware of a couple things. Sunday morning Bible studies. Uh, these are fantastic opportunities. There are three that are mentioned here, the Bible and the Holy Land, taught by Dr. Jim Lindsay. Evangelism for sissies. I love that title. That's a wonderful title. Uh, Wes Tucker is teaching that one. And then Trailhead. Trailhead is a class, if you know someone who's maybe brand new in their faith, maybe that's you, invite them to come with you. Trailhead is a wonderful opportunity for someone to just get grounded, like, what's going on? I know nothing about this whole Jesus thing and the, what, the Bible and what's going on and all that stuff. It's a really good opportunity. Um, and then finally, just along with the, if you're interested in potentially going along with Dr. Jim Lindsay and me to Israel next year, uh, you might be interested in coming to the Holy Land class. Jim, my uh, partner, is going to be teaching that, and um, it'll, it'll just kind of give you a good sense of like what to expect and what you might be looking forward to. Um, question. How many of you guys really enjoy exploring uh, models that assess like personality temperament? You know what I mean by that? I remember when I was a little, fairly young, it was my first introduction to anything that's sort of like, how are you hardwired? And um, I can't even right now remember the name of the guy who talked about it, it'll probably come in a minute, but he talked about four animals. Do you, do you remember this? The, the beaver, the lion, the otter, and the uh, golden retriever, right? And it was, for a kid, it was really easy for me to wrap my mind around, right? Because I'm like, why? Well, I, I mean, I'm not around a whole lot of lions, but like, I kind of know what they're like. They're the leaders, they're in charge. And, you know, I really wanted to be an otter. I was like, they're just fun, they love life, and they're wonderful. The beaver, they're just like the diligent workhorse. They're, you know, they're constantly focused and that sort of thing. The golden retriever is just faithful, like just always there. And then, and then, of course, there are much more complex ones, right? Ones like the Enneagram. I know some of you guys are really into the Enneagram, and man, it's complex, and you could be a seven, but you've got a six wing, and you do this and all these sorts of things. And the, these things are really helpful in some respects. And it, they're just models. It's not an exact science, right? But it gives you an idea of how do I relate to other people? 
I think of it, I remember when I took the Myers-Briggs test. Anyone here ever, ever take that? Carl Jung developed these four um, profiles of what human nature is, is like. And then uh, Elizabeth Briggs Myers uh, kind of formalized those, those four things into um, thinking about, like, first, how do you approach reality? either as an extrovert or an introvert. If you're an extrovert, man, you're at home in the social world. You love it. If you're an introvert, you approach reality, but you're much more comfortable sort of in your own inner world. The second profile is um, how do you register input? And you register input either by sensing, like your five senses, hear and see and taste and touch, or you register senses intuitively, which is to say you use your imagination as you think about those. The third profile is that we we organize data. And we organize data either by thinking or feeling. Thinking you use intellect and logic. And and the feeler arranges data according to, man, like how does that affect people around me? And then finally, the fourth profile is how I arrange outer reality. And it's either by judging or by being perceptive. The judge is the one, man, I want it orderly. I want it structured. And, and the other person is, man, I love being spontaneous, right? And these are, why are these helpful? Why are they useful? Well, they're useful for relationships, right? Horizontal relationships are really good for. When I know your temperament, oh man, you're a golden retriever. I know how I need to talk to you. Or oh boy, you're you know you're the, you're a um, a peacemaker on the enneagram. I know how I need to engage with you. Does that make sense? We've done things in our staff where we've had people come in and do things like there's another one, and there's so many. It's called five voices. You know, are, are you a pioneer? Are you a you know this this that? And the reason we did is we said this will help you work with your coworkers really well. Um, like I know for me, the volume of my voice using this one kind of five voices thing, when I make a suggestion, it can be quote unquote loud, meaning it's, it feels assertive. I have a coworker who their voice is like really quiet, so it can feel almost like, like intrusive, like bullying. And so oftentimes I have to be like, oh my gosh, like I'm so sorry. I, I need to figure out how to engage with you. Does that make sense? That's why we do personality temperament assessments. It's interesting, there's one thing we don't think a whole lot about. What is your spiritual temperament? Ever thought about that? (laughs) It's not gonna be the same thing as a personality temperament. What is your spiritual temperament? And that's what we're going to be looking at in this series is nine different spiritual temperaments, um, calling them sacred pathways. And some people don't like that. Like, that sounds like new agey. Okay, then just call it spiritual temperament, whatever you want to call it. It's nine ways that you say, when I do this, man, I just feel close to God. It's, and I realize it's not that I am more close to God, but I, I have this sense of, man, there's like intimacy. There's just connection. Like my heart's a little bit more on fire. I'm a little bit more into it. It's, it's easy for me to get motivated. Does that make sense? It's easy for me to do it when X, when Y, whatever, when that's happening. And I would suggest if you don't know that, your spiritual life with God, it's going to feel like a rut. It's going to feel like an obligation. It's going to feel like you're stalled. 
because you're not necessarily exploring what are, first of all, maybe all of these spiritual temperaments or sacred pathways or whatever you want to call them. And have I in any significant way explored them? Have I tried mixing them? Um, have I determined what is my most dominant spiritual pathway in my life? Gary Thomas wrote a book a number of years ago that we're leveraging these nine categories from. And his, his book was entitled Sacred Pathways Discover Your Soul's Path to God. And so it's these nine different ways of connecting with God. Um, these spiritual pathways, kind of put very simple, a spiritual pathway describes the way you best relate and draw near to God. Um, it's, it, it carries with it a theological assumption. Theological assumption is God has hardwired you individually specifically, uniquely, in a certain way to relate to him, and it's different from the person next to you. It's just, there's, some, there's overlap, of course, but it is a unique profile, it's a unique design. And again, that when you're doing this, you would say, I feel close to God. Your, your individuality, I would suggest the Bible teaches this, your individuality goes to the deepest recesses of your soul. Uh, it, it goes to the very basis. Let me go to, let me jump over to um, Psalm 139. Psalm 139, these, this is David's words attempting to express this um, deep uniqueness in himself speaking of how God has made him and hardwired him. Can you read that okay? Psalm 139, verses 1 through 3, King David says this, O Yahweh, uh, that's anytime you see the small subscripts, L-O-R-D, he's using the, the, the covenant name for God. <clears throat> this is how we render it in English. O Yahweh, covenant of God, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. And then this, he, he does a parallelism here. Parallelism in, in Hebrew is, a, there's no exclamation points. <laughs> so you repeat it, repetition with variation. You repeat it, but you kind of vary the language a little bit, okay? And so that's what he does here. Um, he says, you search out my path, and my lying down, my lying down contrasts to the rising up, up from verse two. You search my path, and you're acquainted with all my ways. And we're talking about spiritual pathways, okay? God knows your path, which is to say where you're going, the direction of your life. He knows your ways, the ways that you choose, the things you lean into, the things that you like and that you love, the things you're interested in. And David is saying something really interesting. He says, God knows all that. But then he goes further. He, he says, God doesn't just know that. And then down in verse 13, we see this. You formed my inward parts, he says. And then here's the parallel. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. So God's not just familiar with how you're hardwired. He says, I did the hardwiring. I'm responsible for how you're knit together, how you're made, your spiritual temperament, your sacred pathway. 
And then David, in response to this, says, man, I praise you, for I am, this is this famous phrase that we, fearfully and wonderfully made, right? It doesn't, it doesn't take a whole lot of looking into ourselves to realize, man, we're complex, right? Fearfully and wonderfully made as an imager of God. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it well. And then later on he goes and he says, in fact, I can't even comprehend it. <laughs> the way you have made me. And see, the Bible, the Bible actually offers two biblical illustrations for thinking about becoming the person God designed me to be and that being a unique thing. Those two things are parenting and exercise. Um, parenting, the first one, because God created us to be part of his family right from the start, he calls his humans children of God. You are my children. I want you to be in my family. Now, I, I, I've got four kids. Um, in, fact, my, in fact, you know what I did? You know something? I did, this last weekend, I had to take my oldest baby boy to college. And it was horrible. I, was, I just wept like a baby myself. Um, I've got four kids. They're all so different. I mean, there's overlap. There's, you know, there's some Cunningham traits and there's just unique things or whatever. But man, they're different. If you have more than one child, you know they're just, they're very, very different. Can you imagine, if you're a parent and you have multiple kids, can you imagine relating to them in the exact same way? Like, I've, I've got one child, one daughter, she is an introvert. She loves people, she's good with people, she's gifted with people, but it drains her. She comes home at the end of the day and, hey, how was school? Good. She goes downstairs, closes the door, and she's in her room for like 20 minutes. And early on, we were like, should we be worried? Like, is something wrong? No, she's just an introvert. She needs to recharge. And then she can come right back up and engage. My other daughter is an extrovert. It kills her to be alone. It drains her to be alone. She loves being with people. It brings out energy in her. I've got a son who's real competitive. Man, he loves to do sports stuff. Can you imagine if I said to my daughter, I'm only going to play sports stuff with you like he likes? Or if I said to my uh, introvert daughter, well, we're in the car. We need to be talking the whole time because that's what I do with my extrovert daughter. <laughs> right? If I didn't receive my kids' temperaments, I would be a bad dad. But here's the reality. God, has not, God not only receives your temperament, but as we saw from the words of David, he put it there. God put your temperament there. So he doesn't just receive it. He says, you better exercise it toward me because I put it there, baby, and I want it. I like it. <clears throat> and so as we think about this idea, there's, there's, there's parenting. Another illustration the apostle Paul uses is exercise. He likens being conformed to the image of Christ by, by the you might say spiritual disciplines or whatever. He says, it's kind of like exercise. In fact, these are, <clears throat> these are his words. <clears throat> he's, he's talking about experiencing the blessings that come along with following Jesus, which in context, it's basically looking more like Jesus. And he says this, um, don't you know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. He's using an analogy. He's not talking about an actual you know, garland or anything. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. This, this is exercise, training. 
They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we are but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. He's saying, my spiritual life of training, it's really intentional. I don't do things that are purposeless, right? I don't, I don't box the air. That, that wouldn't do anything for me. So he's saying, I'm intentional about how I pursue my devotional life with God. I remember about, a, uh, let me try to think, it was about a year and a half ago, um, I, we take a family trip every summer. I've told you guys about this, up to Minnesota at the end of the summer. And... Um, not this July, but the, the July before, I'm, I'm going through pictures on my phone of, of the trip. I'm like, oh, that was a fun trip. And I'm like, and I come across this picture of me, and to say I am portly is putting it nice. I was, I was like, man, I'm fat. Like, I've gained a lot of weight this past, like, two years. And so I went to a buddy of mine who's just like a workout fanatic. He does Ironman, like crazy, insane stuff. And I was like, Dustin, like, you got to give me just something. Give me, get, set the bar super low but give me something to do because I got to, and one of his first responses is, well, what do you like to do? And I'm like, what? No, you're supposed to tell me what to do. And he goes, well, here's the thing. If I tell you, you know, if I say go run, he's like, do you hate running? I go, yes, I do. I hate running. He goes, do you like bicycling? And then he started going through things. But do you see the genius of what he was doing? He was saying, if you pick up something that you're not hardwired for, it'll last about a week maybe two, maybe, right? If you pick up something that doesn't fit your, like your temperament, how you, it won't work, it won't last. Maybe for a little bit, but it won't last. So when Paul talks about this whole idea of training, it's true in that too. Now, there are some things that are common, scripture, prayer, and all that, but, but, but how you engage with scripture, that probably is gonna look really different than how this person over here engages with scripture, or how you pray is probably look really different than how this person over here prays. But these are these two <laughs> illustrations. And, you know, I've, I've used this many times. Oftentimes people come to me and say, ah, Pastor Brent, what, what, uh, what Bible should I get? And I say, well, what Bible will you read? That's the one you should get. And in fact, I'll even tell, like, I know one person who, um, she really cares about, uh, like, the look of books, like, the colors, the tones, the, um, I mean, she's super into that. And I'm like, then find a Bible that has that sort of thing in it, because you'll, you'll pick it up. You know, what, what translation? I go pick up three, and which one do you like the best? Do that. Why? Because there's motivation. You're building in, you're backfilling motivation for what you're going to do. And see, here, here's the point. Here's, here's the power of this, of, of looking at kind of these nine spiritual pathways, is that the power of exploring and getting to know these nine pathways is it helps unleash the power of desire. Right? Uh, Self-discipline is good, and it's needed, and it's important. But when you have the power of desire fueling what it is you're doing, oh, it's so much easier, isn't it? I mean, this is true in every area of life. And if you don't, if you think about that in your exercising and you think about that in your parenting and you think about that in whatever it might be, your hobbies, but you don't think about it in the most important central thing in your life, your relationship with a person, a personal being, God, um, you're setting yourself up to stall. You're setting yourself up to be in a rut. I set myself up to be in a rut and I have found myself there. <clears throat> Back in the late 70s, early 80s is when people really started talking about having a quiet time. Now, it doesn't mean there wasn't devotional life before, the, but, but, but that phrase, 
um, quiet time meant something real specific. And it was, it was real specific. It was like, um, you know, you, you spend a little bit of time reading your Bible, a little bit of time in worship, a little bit of time in intercessory prayer, maybe some journal taking, and then you go talk to a couple people who, uh, things that you learned during that time, and, you know, and how many times did you do it this week? And if you say less than seven, it's wrong, okay? Um, now, again, if that works for you, wonderful. Love it. That has worked at times for me, right? Um, however, that is, for a lot of people, it feels like, man, that's not life-giving. It's really hard for me to do that, or, or it feels really academic, or it feels whatever it might be. And it's kind of like food. Like, I've got a lot of foods that I love. You know what I love is Cane's chicken. You ever eat at Cane's chicken? It'll change your life. It's so good, right? I love Cane's chicken, right? But I can't have it every, I wouldn't want it every day. I, I, it wouldn't be good for me if I had it every day, but I don't even want it every day. It's not a good diet. So variety, trying different things, exploring different things is absolutely essential and needed. <clears throat> Gary Thomas, he tells this story in his, uh, in his book, Sacred Pathways. He said, when he first met his wife, he said, I had a certain view of what quiet time was. Your, your, you know, your individual time with Jesus, your devotional time, he said. And it was like, you get up first thing in the morning and, you, and, and you've got like a, about 60 minutes and you know, it's like this. And, and you have to, you know, said all the time, Jesus went away early in the morning to pray. So that's clearly the model. And he said, and he met his wife, Lisa, before they were married. And he, and he said, and, and she, would, she would wake up like, like, she's not a morning person. She'd wake up like five minutes before her classes started in college. She'd roll out of bed, make it to class, She'd come back, kind of get ready, and then about noon, she'd go up on the roof of the dorm and she'd lay in the sun and she'd read her Bible. And he said, Lisa, you're cheating. Come on. Everyone knows you're supposed to do it first thing in the morning. Jesus, I mean, that's not a quiet time. Going up and who lays in the sun and reads their Bible? I mean, come on. You got And he said, she kind of felt bad and she didn't know what to say. He said, and then about two weeks later, he said, he heard a knock on his dorm door and he went and opened it up. He said, she just walked right in and walked past him, went over to his Bible on the, on the counter and opened up to Acts chapter 10, verse nine, which says about noon the following day, Peter went up on the roof to pray. And he goes, ah, dang it, dang it. But he said, it was that experience that he said, I realized how narrow my view of what it means to have a devotional life with God looks like. It was so narrow, and that God was really calling him to expand that. And if you found yourself thinking what it means to have a devotional life with God looks like this, X, and you can't imagine anything else, it's, it, it's going to turn into a transaction, is what it's going to turn into. And it's become absolutely lacking any life-giving sense. A.W. Tozer, the Christian author, speaking of those sorts of kind of transactional thinking about faith, he used these words. He says, the whole transaction of religious conversion has been made mechanical and spiritless. Man, so I read that and I'm like, I've totally thought of my devotional life with God with those terms right there before. And he says, we have almost forgotten that God is a person. <laughs> and as such can be cultivated as any person can. I mean, he's a personal being, we're made in his image. That's how personal relationships happen. You try different things, things change over time. So what I wanna do during this series, over the next nine weeks, 
is I, each week I want to look at one, we might combine a couple of these, one or two each week, of these spiritual pathways and ask you to say, first of all, is this yours? And each week I'll start by asking you a couple kind of assessment questions. And, and, and you can kind of rate like zero to five. And then if you get done and you're like, man, I'm zero on all these, so it's probably not your spiritual pathway. But if you're like, man, I'm like a 20 on this one, that, that may be your predominant spiritual pathway. Um, so let me do this. You, you have a bulletin and inside, I'm not going to read this because you can read for yourself, but I want to walk through these nine and just ask a couple questions with each one and see if anything starts to kind of percolate with you. If you're like, ooh, oh, that might be me. So again, you can read these on your own. I trust you can, but let me just ask some questions as, as we go. Um, the first spiritual pathway is the naturalist, okay? The naturalist says this, let me be outdoors. Man, that's when I feel closest to God. So question, would you, would you agree with this statement? I feel closest to God when I'm surrounded by what God has made, the mountains and forests and streams and ocean. Would you say, man, I feel cut off from God when I have to spend too much time indoors just listening to speakers, singing songs. Nothing makes me feel closer to God than when I'm outside. If any of that resonates with you, that may be part of your spiritual pathway, the naturalist. Number um, two um, is the sensate. And the sensate says, let me experience. And what they mean is with my five senses. That's what sensate is. My, my, my five senses, that's how I engage. Um, would you uh, connect with any of these? I feel closest to God when I'm at... Uh, Sorry, when I'm in a church that allows my senses to come alive, when I can see, smell, hear, almost taste his majesty. Or you, you're, or you might say, I enjoy attending a high church. Now, if you grew up in high church, you know what I mean by that, where there's incense, maybe there's formal communion or the Eucharist, some of those traditional pieces you really like. So the five senses are, are God's most effective inroad to my heart. Would you say that? Um, the traditionalist, the traditionalist would say, let me remember. That's what I want to do. Um, would you agree with this? I feel closest to God when I'm participating in a familiar form of worship that has memories dating back to my childhood, maybe old hymns that you sang. Rituals and traditions move me more than anything else. The thought of I'm doing something that people have been doing for thousands of years, there's roots to it. I, would you say, I begin to feel closest to God when I lay something on the altar? Maybe that's the traditionalist inside you. They like ritual. They like structure. The ascetic. The ascetic says, let me be alone with God. That's what I really, really want. I feel closest to God when I'm alone and there's like nothing distracting me. There's no music playing. There's no songs. There's no people. If you would say, I would describe my faith more as internal, it, it lives up here a lot than external. Um, taking an overnight retreat by myself to a monastery sounds like amazing. Oh, that would be awesome. <laughs> that might be the ascetic in you. The activist. The activist says, let me conquer something with God. Uh, I feel closest to God when I'm cooperating with him in standing up for his justice. 
Maybe it's writing letters to government officials, newspaper editors, picketing at a place of injustice, urging people to vote, becoming informed about current issues. In fact, I get frustrated when I see apathetic Christians who don't become active. I've got a friend who is 100% down this road, and they're always a little frustrated, like, how come you don't care more about this? And I'm like, that's your spiritual pathway. It's, It's important, but that's your spiritual pathway. Go for it. I'm not telling you not to do it, but you need to realize everyone's built differently. And so as I'm reading these, maybe you're even beginning to think about people in your life, and you're like, oh, yeah, they are always doing that. And I always kind of wonder, like, why? Why, why are they so jazzed about that? It's because it's, that's because God made them that way. Um, a caregiver. This person says, let me care. Let me care for people. Would you say, I feel closest to God when I see him in the needy, the poor, the sick, the imprisoned. I feel God's presence most strongly when I'm sitting quietly by the bed of someone, maybe who's lonely, maybe who's scared, they're ill, and I'm, and I'm taking a meal to them. I'm, I'm in some way meeting a need that they might have. You can count on me to offer a ride or to volunteer for helping activities. And man, it's, I, I just grow weary when I see Christians who, who spend their time singing songs, but they have a sick neighbor and they never do anything about it. That's the caretaker. The enthusiast. The enthusiast says, let me celebrate. Man, I want, I want to just celebrate. This person would say, I feel closest to God when my heart is set soaring, and I feel like I, it's going to burst, worshiping God all day, shouting his name. Celebrating God and his love is my favorite form of worship. I feel most energized when I take a spiritual risk on behalf of God, or see God move in a supernatural way. Tradition and ritual, man, it puts me to sleep. (laughs) I serve a supernatural God, and I'm excited to see him move in unexpected ways now. That's the enthusiast. Number eight, the contemplative. The contemplative says, let me feel. I want to contemplate on something and, 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 and feel it deeply. I feel closest to God when my emotions are awakened, when God quietly touches my heart. And he tells me that he loves me. It makes me feel like I'm his closest friend. I would rather be alone with God contemplating his love for me than participating in you know, formal liturgy or being distracted by a walk outside. That would be too distracting. The most difficult times in my faith are when I can't feel God's presence, the enthusiast. And then the last one, number nine, the, the intellectual pathway. This person says, let me think great thoughts about God and about his world. I feel closest to God when I learn something new about him that I didn't understand before. My mind needs to be stimulated first before my heart will ever make it anywhere. It's very important for me to, uh, uh, important for, for me that I know exactly what I believe, why I believe it. I get frustrated when the church focuses too much on the experiential, the emotional side of things. Of far more importance is the need to understand the biblical worldview and who God is and who he's made me to be. Now, as I read those, any of you kind of feel like, I'm starting to sense a little bit of a, yeah, I I know I'm not that, (laughs) but I know I might be that. Or I know someone who is definitely 
that. And I've always kind of wondered why that is such a big deal for them. Hopefully some of these are starting to kind of perk something inside you. Now, let me, let me mention a couple comments about, about these um, questions. Do we have only one pathway? No, no, probably a mixture of them. Um, it's, we, I, in fact, I think we rarely rely on a single approach or temperament to God to connect every time. But as we explore these over the next few weeks, I'm guessing you'll, you'll probably find one, maybe two, that is sort of predominantly, yeah, man, that's, that's my spiritual pathway. When I do that, I just, I really feel connected to God. Um, do temperaments change? Yeah. Yeah, they do. Spiritual temperaments, um, they evolve over time. I mean, much like a married couple finds different rhythms in their own marriage over the course of their marriage, you're likely to find different ways to connect with God. I know one person who, um, definitely an enthusiast, you know, loves to feel things I want to celebrate. Later in life, actually, and, and, and these two are on like opposite sides, but was introduced to some traditionalism that didn't, he didn't grow up with. And he latched onto it. And he's like, oh my goodness, it's so meaningful to me. Now he still, he likes to get energized, but he finds it's now it has this overlap with the, with the traditional pathway. Really, really interesting how people's temperaments, I think, change over time. Um, another warning, be aware of temperament envy. <laughs> Can you imagine what that is? You probably know because you probably have it. Um, if you kind of wonder maybe what your temperament is, here's, here's another thing to look at. Look at the people who you most admire, want to emulate and become like. That may, now may not, that may be, if you know what their pathway is, that may be yours. But again, sometimes it could be, oh, that's, oh, I wish I had that. I, I so badly want that and I don't. But explore different pathways. I would suggest that your spiritual life with God will be more varied and therefore exciting and robust, and you'll want to do it. You'll want to engage. If you, if you take, try all of these different elements and find your wiring, find, find your hard wiring and where the overlap is. That's why the, the image that we have up on the screen, when I asked our, our graphics people to make it, I said, at, at first they were just sort of listed out. And I said, I want there to be some, like some sort of a sense of overlap. I want there to be a picture of these things are interactive, if that makes sense, with each other. So engage with all of them. Now, let me bring up a couple objections. Say, well, maybe we shouldn't be studying this. Um, isn't this spiritual uh, navel gazing? You know, just sort of self-focused. I'm just looking at my navel all day, thinking about myself. Um, it can be. <laughs> Any personality assessment can be that. Anything can be turned in upon itself too much, and it's all about me. And so our motivation for this has to be this idea that my goal is to develop self-awareness, not so that I'm focused on myself, not self-obsession, but self-awareness so that I can develop a greater motivation to pursue the one who made me, who I love. That's our motivation. for. Is there a danger in viewing our spiritual life too individualistic. Like I'm gonna give, you know, this is my own little spiritual. Yeah, there is. <laughs> There's a danger in becoming too individualistic in 
your faith, I have to admit there is a limit to the individual approach to spirituality. Um, It's not scriptural, and it's not wise to pursue God apart from your community. It's, It's absolutely not. Our individual expressions, whatever that looks like for me or for you, of faith, it has to be joined to corporate worship. It, it has to be informed by communal worship. This is not an individual license just to be like, well, just go off by yourself and do you. <laughs> That's not, but it's to say, in the midst of my community, God's made me unique, and he wants to relate to me in a unique way. And in a very real sense, every single day I have an audience of one. I'm engaging with my God every single day. And see, the payoff is the sacred pathways that as, as we look at, as we go through them, they're really based on this. As we said earlier, how can, how can I unleash power in my life, motivation, that's going to fuel my relationship with God? Because I don't know about you, but man, I need that. So I would say it's disciplined freedom. It's freedom to pursue these different areas, but certainly with recognition. That, now, there's going to be discipline involved here right? There's going to be some spiritual pathways that, man, it's it's harder for me, but I still have to engage in elements of it. There is discipline involved, but there's a a broader understanding to think about what is my quiet time like? What is my devotional life like? Because see, here's the reality. You were made to pursue God. Let Let me read one passage for you. The Apostle Paul, we've, we've read this passage before. The Apostle Paul goes to Athens, Greece. He's engaging with absolute pagans, people who do not have the Torah, the Hebrew <clears throat> scriptures, and he's presenting Jesus to them, and he tells them something, even though they, they, they don't have any of that you know, special revelation. He says this. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, because they have all of these idols and temples and that sort of thing, nor is he served by human hands, since though he, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life, breath, and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind, he's speaking of Adam, uh, Mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. That's the breaking up of humanity at Babel is what he's speaking of there. But look what he says. He did this so that what? That they should seek him. Humanity is is meant to, to be on the hunt for God and perhaps feel their way toward him. How would they do that? Well, Maybe their senses, maybe contemplation, maybe the intellectual pathway. He's saying you're built to pursue, you're built to chase, you're built to find, to feel their way toward him. And he is actually not far from each one of us. We're made for a relationship with God. And that was Paul's basic message. You guys, you're, you're, you're completely deceived pagans but you, you were made to run on the fuel of God. You were made to experience God's love for you. And, and what I would suggest to all of us is that your most, your most critical need daily, minute by minute, is to experience the love of God. 
You were hardwired to seek it. You need it desperately. Your need for God's love, it's not casual and occasional. It's constant and it's necessary. And yet the reality is that we live much of our lives unaware, completely unaware of it. Let me see if I can kind of illustrate it for you. I remember years ago watching a movie. My, My wife and I have very different movie tastes. Like if there's, you know, if there's not guns and I don't want to watch it, okay? Um, and she loves, you know, the romantic. There's one movie that we both like. And the first time I watched it, I cried at the end. In fact, it's happened a couple of times to me. It's The Notebook. Have you seen it? I know, people laugh when I say it, but I'm secure enough in my man to say that I, I, I like The Notebook. And if you've, if you've seen it, it's this story. <clears throat> so the story starts out like this. If you, if you haven't seen it, too bad, I'm going to ruin it for you, okay? Um, it starts out with this old man. He's played by James Gardner, and he goes to this kind of nursing home, and you get the impression that he, he goes there every day, and he reads stories to the people who are there at the nursing home. So he walks in, and, and he sits down in the room of, of this woman, and he starts reading a story to her. And she's kind of nervous at first, and the, and the orderly say, it's okay, ma'am. He comes here every day, and he reads stories. And so he starts reading this story, and, and, and the movie goes back and forth from sort of current moment to the, in the past where this story is, is taking place. And he tells the story, and it's about this young boy named Noah. And Noah lives in uh, Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, or is that North Carolina? South Carolina. And he lives in this little town. Um, he's he's kind of poor. He's got a high school education, but he likes the poetry of Walt Whitman. And he meets this young girl named Allie, and, and she just comes there for the summer, and you get the impression her family's very, very wealthy. They have the ability to just come there and rent this beautiful home and stay there. And they're so different, and there's so little chance of, of their lives coming together. And, and she doesn't have just a high school education. She has the best education that her parents can pay for. And, and they meet... And, and everything seems to be working against this relationship, and yet it keeps moving forward. It keeps, it keeps going. And her family's intact, mom and dad, but they're very pretentious. His family, the mom's gone. We don't know. Has she died? Did, did she leave them? But they're not pretentious. They're very, they're very kind. And everything seems so different, and yet they, they have this summer romance. And and they love each other, and the end of the summer's coming, and the, the parents don't like that this boy of low means is interested in their daughter. And so as they're leaving for the summer, he's crying, he's chasing, he says, I'll write you, and he's gonna write her every single day. The mom hears that, and so she goes to the mailbox every single day, and she intercepts the letters so that she never, Allie never gets the 365 letters that he writes for a whole year. And it seems like everything's working against their relationship, <clears throat> working And then World War II comes into play, and because of geography and situation, they're driven even further apart from each other. And it seems like there's so much working against the relationship, and it's not going to work. And it's at that moment that the the author kind of tips his hand a little bit, and you realize this old man reading this story to this old woman, it's their story. It's their story from, from when they were young and, and, and she has a form of dementia and she doesn't, she doesn't know. And, and he's reading it, hoping that he can kind of bring her back for moments. And it's the end of the day and they're sitting in her room and he's prepared a nice meal. There's a beautiful table, white tablecloth. There's a rosebud, a rose and a bud vase. He's playing the music that informed their relationship for years to come. And they have this beautiful meal and they finish it. And then he finishes the story and she says, 
That's, it's such a beautiful story and it sounds so familiar. And then cognition washes across her face and she says, that's our story, isn't it? And he says, yes, it is. She said, how long do we have? And he said, last time it was five minutes. <clears throat> and she said, how are the kids? That's a question a mother would ask, isn't it? He says, the kids are good. They were here to see you today. She said, would you tell them I love them? He said, I'll tell them that. And then the music's playing and she says, hold me. And so he holds her and he says, can we dance? And they start dancing around the room. And the whole room, the music, everything, it's pulsating this man's love for this woman. He's trying to bring her back to say, do you know how much I love you? And just as quickly as cognition washed across her face, it goes away. She finds herself in the arms of a stranger. She screams and she's out of control and the orderlies have to come in and sedate her. And it's at that moment, you look over at James Gardner and he's standing against the wall and he's biting his knuckles and he's crying. And every single time I see that part, man, I cry. You know why? Because that's my story. That's your story. You have a God who pursues you, who loves you. He creates environments that are pulsating his love for you. And so much of the time we live in spiritual dementia, completely forgetting. And at moments we lean in, at moments we connect, but then we get distracted, something happens, a pain comes in our life, and I find myself in the arms of a stranger. And when I looked at James Gardner's face, it was like a window into the heart of God that he hurts so badly because he loves us so much. God loves you so much. In fact, 1 John 3, we read this. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. Now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when it appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. We are God's children now. God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. And there's nothing you need more in life than to experience his love. Your need for God is constant and it's necessary. It's not casual, it's not occasional. And so over these next few weeks, I'm gonna ask you, I'm gonna challenge you to say, lean into that love, the one who so badly longs to give you his love. And we pray that God would break that sense of spiritual dementia in our lives where we're completely unaware that he is close, he is longing for us and we're made for him. Amen. Over these next few minutes during this song, I'm going to invite you to go to one of the stations um, around the room. We have communion elements here. Um, take those elements, go back to your seat, and on your own, in the presence of the one who loves you, <laughs> take these elements, the bread, Christ's body broken for us, the cup, his blood, shed for us and have a moment with the audience of one, the greatest lover of your soul, and then stand, engage in worship, and we'll end.
That's our declaration. There is nothing better than our God who loves us so much and wants us to know and experience his love. Amen. My prayer is that you would go this week and you would experience the love of God regularly and consistently. Love you guys. Love being with you. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being a community. See you guys next Wednesday.